On this show, we discuss true crime that is often graphic and violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. On today's episode, we will be talking about William Clyde Gibson III. Gibson claims to have killed at least 33 people starting in 1982 when he was 25. He was caught at age 54 in 2012 with the severed breast of his last victim in his possession. Gibson has only been convicted of three, but it's entirely possible there are many more. This episode is called One Sick Individual. I'm your host, Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. I'm circling back to my home state of Indiana. My very first episode of Crime Biscuit was on Herbert Baumeister, a serial killer from Indiana. Back home again, today we're going to visit another Hoosier serial killer, a more recent serial killer. We all know about the biggies from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, but people don't talk much about the more modern day killers, and I think I know why. We don't know about them. The reason? We kind of keep the others on this weird, dark pedestal. We look at them and say, this is the epitome of evil. And we kind of stop looking around to see who else is out there committing acts just as atrocious and just as horrible, but today. The sad thing is their crimes are probably more solvable and we should focus on them more and get their victim stories out there. Now, not that my little podcast will accomplish all that much, but if it gets one person to start talking... Who knows? So let's dive in. William Clyde Gibson III was born on October 10th, 1957. By his own admission, he claims to have had a good childhood. He wasn't molested. He didn't start fires. He didn't harm animals. He calls those common traits often associated with serial killers as all that egregious stuff. If you were to ask Clyde why he kills, his response will probably be, I just felt like it. He was interviewed once, and it was apparent he felt no remorse. In fact, he said, I don't think I've got any of that humanity. It doesn't seem to affect me. He also said, I could kill a person and go out to dinner. Clyde had a alcohol problem. So one of his favorite pastimes was to go to bars. And one of his habits was to go to seedy bars in southern Indiana. This was kind of his preferred hunting ground. There he would set about luring women into vehicles, usually ones he'd stolen. Once he had them in his grasp, he preferred to strangle or stab them and then sexually assault them after they were dead. He would then go about mutilating them, maybe keeping some body part as a means for future sexual gratification. I listened to this podcast called Where the Bodies Are Buried, where serial killer profile Phil Chalmers does a phone interview with Clyde. Much of what follows in the next few minutes is information from that interview. I would also highly recommend that podcast. Mr. Chalmers talks to several serial killers, and hearing them describe what they did 
and their own words is as chilling and eye-opening, so give it a listen. Now, Clyde is currently serving two death sentences and one 65-year sentence. He says from jail that he is where he belongs. He repeatedly says he did what he did just because he wanted to. In this phone interview, Clyde also says that he ate parts of them that shouldn't be eaten. He says this, and in his voice, it almost sounds like he is laughing just a little. Now, I think it's pretty obvious that no part of a person should be eaten. Why he says he ate parts of them that shouldn't, as if only parts of them shouldn't, I don't even want to understand. But after he would do what he was going to do with them, he would then dump the bodies into the Ohio River, and he'd go about his life. Clyde also says that he knew what he was doing was wrong, and killing wasn't his only crime. Robbery was kind of a thing for him too, and he makes a point to say that he didn't kill everyone that he robbed. He first admitted to a murder that was motivated by robbery. That first one happened overseas. Clyde also had another little pastime. He liked to play sniper. He said he would go to the projects and he would shoot people from a distance. He didn't hang around to find out how many of those people he shot lived or died. He laughs when he talks about these shootings. He also seems to find it quite amusing that these shootings would be blamed on rival gangs from across the line in Louisville, Kentucky. And I'm telling you, if you hear Clyde interview, he laughs a lot while talking about things that aren't even remotely funny. But the really weird thing is when you hear him do it, it's not fake and it's not forced. It doesn't appear he's doing it for effect. This is actually how this man's mind works. It's very, very freaky. Anyways, he claims to have done this sniper shooting routine at least 20 times. He says he's not quite sure. And you'll find out if you listen to that podcast. He says that a lot. He doesn't remember a lot of details. Things run together, get fuzzy. Part of this is probably because he is or was an alcoholic. That could explain some of it. And you have to ask yourself, is part of it because he did do so many more crimes than he's been convicted of that they've all kind of run together on him? Who knows? Clyde says that his first murder in the U.S. was in 1982. He also claims that most of his victims were tramps or barflies. Those are his words. So Karen Hodala was a beautician. She is the first victim he will eventually be convicted of. And that murder occurred in 2002. And if I'm not mistaken, I read that it happened on October 10th, which also happens to be Clyde's birthday. So he met Karen in a bar where he claims that Karen approached him and started to talk to him. Then her husband shows up. Clyde, of course, defends himself to the husband saying, dude, she approached me. But while the husband is standing there, Karen supposedly is whispering to Clyde that she'll be back. And she does come back. Clyde then goes on to say that they leave there and Karen is taking a bunch of pills and he wants her to share. What ends up happening is he pulls out a pocket knife and stabs her in the throat. To hear him say it, it's just kind of like he just stabbed out and he happened to hit her in the throat. And he also happened to hit her in the juggler vein. He said she kind of mumbled out a no, and that was it. You know, blood is coming out rather forcefully from her juggler vein. 
He then mutilated her body and in his own words, what he did was disgusting. He also admits to having sex several times with her dead body. He said what he did was sick shit. Karen's body was dumped near the Ohio River. Later, when he's asked if he took trophies, he admits to taking a few driver's licenses, driver's licenses, which authorities found in his mom's garage, along with some finger bones. This is later, obviously, when they catch him. Clyde admits that killing is exciting, and it provides him with a sense of empowerment. And doing it so many times empowered him even more. He says there were so many stupid, dumb luck moments that he claims he should have been caught decades before he was. Those near misses don't make him rethink perhaps his life choices. Instead, they embolden him to just keep right on going. So that first known victim or victim he's been convicted of was in 2002. The next one that he'll actually be convicted of doesn't happen until 2012. So let's ask ourselves, what is Clyde up to in those 10 years? According to him, he's killing people. But some authorities say he's just talking, he's lying, and there's nothing to support that. So let me add here that Phil Chalmers, who is a serial killer profiler, who did the podcast we talked about, in his own words, he says that his purpose, Phil's purpose in life is, or calling in life, is to solve unsolved crimes. By talking to these killers, his goal is to get them to admit to cold cases and to bring closure to families. So as I'm listening to this, I'm inclined to believe that Clyde is in fact being at least partially honest. I am 100% convinced that there are other victims. In fact, in that episode, he admits to a cold case, and if he isn't the killer, he sure knows a lot. And Clyde also gave them a murderer back when they caught him that they didn't know about, saying that the body was buried in his mother's backyard, and lo and behold, that body was there. That alone should at least make us think, and hopefully authorities think, that perhaps he really has killed quite a few more people. So back to what Clyde has to say. He says that in the 10 years between Karen Hodella in 2002 and Stephanie Kirk in March of 2012, he killed at least 15. When he is asked where he thinks his victims were from, he names Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, and one, he says, was from Colorado. Most of his murders took place in stolen vehicles, which is probably another reason why it was hard to catch him. He wasn't doing it in a house or at a specific location. He would steal a vehicle, pick these women up, kill them, dump them, and then go on about his life. Stephanie, though, was killed in his home, as is his last victim. This is because his mother had passed away. He lived with his mom. And when she died, he now had this house to himself. Obviously, he couldn't be bringing strange women home and murdering them with his mother there. So his final victim was Christine Wittes, who was a 75-year-old friend of his mother. That happened in April of 2012. And this is why Christine was killed, because she walked in on him dismembering a body that he had laying on a piece of plastic. This is the only murder that Gibson says he feels any regret over. But before you give him any credit, 
I was reading some um, recounts of court um, proceedings, and one pathologist says there is evidence that 75-year-old Christine had been sexually assaulted while alive. So there's that. If he was feeling a lot of remorse for killing her, why would you do that? I don't know. I'm not a serial killer. So Clyde says he deserves the death penalty and that he's getting what he deserves. I think we would agree with him. He also says when he's asked the hypothetical question, if he was released today, would he kill again? He immediately says, yes. Yes, he would. So you might be thinking to yourself, what on earth does he do other than kill people? You know, is he just running around drinking and killing people and that's his life? He actually was married and he had a job. He worked for the power company doing line clearing, cleaning, clearing trees. He says he got married in 1980 and he did that job with the power company for the entire time he was married, which lasted until 1994, 14 years. He did have a drinking problem. But other than that, he claims that he had a totally normal marriage. When asked if his sex life was normal, he says yes. But meanwhile, during this 14-year marriage, he is out killing, sexually assaulting either pre- or post-mortem or both, and mutilating women while he's married and working for the power company. He says that the only person that suspected he might not be right was his sister. And his sister, as you'll find out, is the one who calls police. He says on this podcast when he's interviewed that his sister came to him and said she had a dream that he had cut some woman's throat. And this was before she made a fatal trip to a garage. And you'll find out about that. But that's bizarre. Whether it's true or not, that's bizarre. So on where the bodies are buried in the podcast, Gibson says that he wants to come clean on some of his other murders. But Clyde makes a point of saying he would never harm a child. And when he is asked about a man who killed children, Clyde's response is, I would like to cut that man's head off. He also has kind of a nice hatred for a guy in the prison that he's currently at, who apparently set a house on fire by putting a road flare in a five-year-old boy's shorts. And the little boy's sister, who was so scared that she was hiding in a closet, ended up dying of smoke inhalation. Clyde finds that situation irritating and says the guy, that guy and any other guy who kills children deserves to die as well. So this is an example of that weird moral compass that some killers seem to have where you can, you know, murder, mutilate, sexually assault, but you're still better than someone who kills a child. And to be honest, some of us in our head think that people who harm children are the lowest of the low. But that doesn't make Clyde a better person than this other killer. So back to the case. Detective Jeff Topping was with the Floyd County Sheriff's Department, and he was in on the arrest of Clyde. So prior to the murders, Clyde was known for being a car thief. They knew that about him. No one in the police department suspected him of being a serial killer. So when Chalmers asks Topping if he believes that Clyde has only killed three, Topping says basically that if you start killing in 2002 and then you don't kill again in 2012, that's kind of hard to believe. 
He does believe there are at least a couple of other missing persons that Clyde is probably involved in. Topping doesn't know if he believes it's 30-something. I personally give Detective Topping credit for at least not saying it's impossible, like it seems some other um, police departments or authority figures say that Clyde's just a liar, that it's just the three. I don't believe it. I don't know about you, but there's others. So back to his last victim, Christine. She comes to the house. Now, if you listen to him talk, she was a close friend of his mother. She didn't need a reason to come over his house. He claims he didn't need a reason to go over to hers. So it wasn't odd that she just came over. Now, Clyde also claims that he and Christine had had a mutual sexual relationship after Christine's husband died, but they kept this relationship a secret. I don't know if I believe that, but that's what he claims. This day, Christine shows up at his mother's house and there is Clyde dismembering a, what he calls barfly, on a sheet of plastic. He says he doesn't even know the name of the person. He, of course, can't have that. He can't have a witness, so he strangles Christine. Then he uses Christine's van to transport the dismembered body to the river to dispose of it. Clyde ends up cutting off one of Christine's breasts and stuffs her body in the garage. He has the breast in his pocket and he goes to a Hooters driving Christine's van. He, in his words, stays out too late. He does too much drinking and he doesn't get back to the house in time to deal with the body in the garage before it's discovered. So he's out till 2 a.m. He needs to head back home to do something with Christine's body because it is in the garage. In the meantime, Gibson's sister, who I mentioned earlier, had found Christine's body in some garbage bags inside of the garage of their mother's house. So she calls the police. The police are looking for him. They get multiple witness accounts and sightings of Clyde driving the murdered woman's van. The police eventually find him, chase him down, they get him in a Walmart parking lot. He is in the driver's seat, and according to Detective Topping, Clyde was fooling with something in the console, and they thought maybe it was a weapon, like maybe he had a gun, and he was reaching for it, messing with it. What he was actually doing was messing with Christine Wittes' breast. So when Clyde is asked later, while he's in prison, if he would like to apologize to the victim's families, he basically says, no, not really. I'm not sorry, so I'm not going to lie about it. I did it because I could, and there was no reasoning behind it. This is like multiple times he said there is no reason to do what he did. He then goes on to say that he's not a terrible person, but he's not a good person either. He brings up the fact that he loves animals and would never hurt one. He also says that if you or I met him in a bar, we would have no idea that he's a killer. Side note here, according to Phil Chalmers, there are a hundred serial killers moving around the country at any given time. That is really scary to think about. So during one phone interview with Phil Chalmers, Clyde mentions the name Elizabeth Bannister. This is a name that he has not previously been connected to. So is this a real victim? Turns out Elizabeth Bannister had been found murdered in January of 2000 and her case is unsolved. 
This is one of the reasons why Phil Chalmers does these interviews with these serial killers, his motivation to get them to admit to other crimes so that they can solve unsolved murders. It appears that this is what is happening on this phone call with Clyde. So Clyde says that he picked Elizabeth up as she was just walking around. And it turns out that Elizabeth was originally from New Albany, Indiana, which is Clyde's hometown. She was killed in Evansville, Indiana. So this is a 20-year-old cold case that he has a name and a location for. Phil Chalmers verifies this. She was also stabbed to death in her home. The perpetrator escaped without being seen. So now we're going to dig a little and see, you know, Phil digs, not me, but Phil digged, you know, did some digging. And then he starts posing some questions to see if maybe Clyde just heard about this case or was he really the killer? And this this um, murder had been in the media in, you know, in New Albany. And so the trick was to find out if Clyde really had details that would match up with the case. Just because he knew her name didn't mean he hadn't read it and was trying to take credit for a kill that wasn't his, as other killers have done. But when he is asked if Elizabeth's case was on the news and did Clyde see it, Clyde says he didn't know much because he went back home to New Albany after he killed her and the crime took place in Evansville. Clyde says he picked her up, took her home. He claims to have been pretty stoned at the time and didn't remember a lot of the details. He did remember a big mirror and believes it got broken. He called it a house that had been turned into smaller apartments. This is true. He also says there were other people around at the time when he went in there with her. He says he basically killed her and left. He did not mutilate her like he did the others. He just got it in his head that he could kill her. So he did. When asked if he remembered how many times he stabbed her, he didn't really recall. He also didn't know if anyone saw him leave because he wasn't paying attention. It seems to me that Clyde just skates by once again on dumb luck because he says there were people outside when he got there. Somebody should have seen him. So the other victim that Clyde's actually convicted of killing is 35-year-old Stephanie Kirk, who he buried in the backyard of his mother's home. He'd met Stephanie at a bar in March of 2012. She'd gone there to meet a man she'd met the night before with the intention of going for a ride on his motorcycle. When Stephanie doesn't return home, her father calls her cell phone, but there's no answer. She's never heard from after that. During court testimony, police reported that Stephanie's back was broken, and she also showed signs of postmortem sexual assault. What I want to say about this one in particular is, this is not one they knew about. Clyde told them, and I don't know if you remember me mentioning this in the beginning, that there was, that he had killed more than, than the people he's, you know, that they were trying him for. And he pointed them to the backyard, to Stephanie Kirk's body, which, you know, they didn't believe that he had really killed someone else, but they go dig it up and there she was. So this was not the person he was dismembering when Christine caught him. Stephanie had died just a month before she's buried in the backyard when Christine comes over to the house, he's dismembering someone whose name he doesn't even know. That's the body he took and dumped at the river, um, then went to Hooters with Christine's breast in the van with him. You know, this that's three, and this is a two-month period. 
And then, you know, we're back to 2002 with Karen Hodella. So I, I don't know anyone in their right mind that would not at least believe it's really possible that he's killed a lot more. Because he killed three in a pretty short time span here. What, it, what he just for 10 years was watching cartoons and eating popcorn? I mean, come on. I, I don't believe for one minute that in, in that 10 years he wasn't killing other people. I also believe he was killing sooner than he's given credit for. He says he started killing in 1982. His first murder he's convicted of is 2002. That's 20 years. You, I'm sorry. He was up to some no good in those years, and hopefully someday we'll figure it out. So let's get back to the real case, and I'll stop venting. Oh, he has three trials, obviously. At one of these trials, the judge has to order that Gibson's hair not be cut. Why, you might ask? Well, because unremorseful Clyde has gotten a tattoo on the back of his head. And this tattoo takes up the entire back of his head. The tattoo says, death row times three. And the judge thought it might sway the jury if they saw it. So he wanted Clyde's hair to grow so it would be covered. Now, he ends up making a plea deal for one of them. That's why he has two death sentences and one 65-year life sentence. Death row times three is wrong. It should be death row times two. So if you're going to get a stupid tattoo on the back of your head, at least get it right. So some of the newspapers are reporting on the various trials of Clyde, and they recount that Christine Wittes was sexually assaulted post-mortem. But I read in an article in the Courier-Journal that it says Dr. Amy Burroughs-Beckham, who is a forensic pathologist at the Kentucky Medical Examiner's Office, performed an autopsy on Wittes. And she says there is evidence that Christine was alive, at least for some of the sexual assault. There were various cuts, scrapes, and bruises to Christine's face, as well as what Dr. Burroughs Beckham believed to be a bite mark to her genitals. This last, the doctor said, would have been caused during a sexual assault and likely while the victim was still alive. It's entirely possible he assaulted her both before and after death. He is sick enough. There was also swelling likely caused by blunt force on her scalp, which was probably caused by her hitting her head on the garage floor. The fact that Clyde would treat a longtime family friend in such a manner just kind of clarifies his state of mind. When he acts on his urges, it does not matter who is in his sights. There's no emotion to it, just the need to act. According to Phil Chalmers, there are 80,000 to 100,000 unsolved murders in the United States. It is entirely possible that Clyde is telling the truth and that there are at least 30 other victims of Clyde's out there waiting to be found. At this point, I think we just have to hope that before Clyde is put to death, he comes clean and he appoints authorities towards other victims and gives closure to those families. That should about do it for this episode. Go check out the podcast Where the Bodies Are Buried. It's amazing, and there is something to be said about hearing these killers talk about their crimes. It gives you a whole new perspective. Hang tight for the final crumb. Please subscribe and hit like. If you want, you can follow me on Instagram at CrimeBiscuit or drop me an email at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Here's your final crumb. If serial killers look like the rest of us and might be sitting next to you at a bar, my advice, don't ever leave home again. See you next time.